everybody. How's it going? Thanks for joining me. Having a great show today. I think that you're really going to enjoy this guest. Now, a lot of people have been looking at the pro-life movement after, of course, the Dobbs decision. We have this landmark case. It changes the way that people look at abortion law. There's kind of a seismic quake. The left feels like they've lost their power in the Supreme Court, the kind of this huge victory that is supposed to have been this long worn battle for the GOP is finally achieved. And as soon as that happens, it feels like the GOP wants to jump ship. Now, Grayson Quay wrote a great piece on this. He's over at the Daily Caller, and I had decided to go ahead and have him on so we can talk about that. Look at the pro-life issue, where it stands now, what the GOP is planning to do with it and what the future could hold for those who are interested in expanding the cause of pro-life. But Grayson, thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, thank you for having me, Oren. So like I said, you went ahead and laid out, I think, a lot of the kind of the groundwork in this piece of kind of where we're at. But can you explain, like I said, we're in this place where there's this big victory. Everyone should be celebrating. Everyone should you feel like, you know, be uh, emboldened by the fact that they were able to finally secure this hard fought battle. And now everybody's walking away. What's going on? Yeah. So it was, like you said, a huge victory. Um, I still think that it was the greatest day of American history in my lifetime, probably. Um, and not to downplay that at all. Uh, there are generations of people before you and I were even born who were fighting on this issue. Um, tens of thousands of people went to jail during the Operation Rescue protests in the 80s and 90s. That history has been largely suppressed even among the pro-life movement. Um, but yeah, we got the Dobbs decision. It was huge. It, it's an effort that stretched over decades, um, you know, from the Clarence Thomas confirmation battle all the way up through uh, Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. But the backlash was swift and it was it was harsh. Um, there were, I believe, six ballot measures in the 2022 midterms that had to do with abortion, uh, some of which were legalizing it statewide and some of which were uh, declarations that a state's constitution provided no right to an abortion that would open up the door for more restrictions. And there was one, I believe, in Montana that was a born alive infants protection bill. Um, and all six of those failed. Um, the most kind of notable and, and terrifying of those was in Kansas, where you saw a ballot measure saying that there was no right to an abortion in the state constitution uh, fail about 60-40, which is the same uh, margin by which Trump won Kansas in 2016. Uh, so even in deep red Kansas, uh, the pro-life position in isolation from all other issues is not popular. Um, the governor of Oklahoma, Kevin Stitt, came into the Daily Caller office a while ago and was answering questions on the record. And, you know, I think in the last five elections, every county in Oklahoma has gone red. And even he said he was a little nervous about uh, the possibility of facing a referendum like this in the state. So what do you think is it that sets this apart? I mean, we're looking in a, at a situation where, you know, a lot of people didn't see the red wave that they thought would come. I think many people who were uh, very bullish on Republican politics and the ability of kind of the momentum and the, the the lack of popularity of the Biden administration, how terrible job they're doing. They kind of thought that there would be a big sea change. But like you said, it does seem very specific to this issue. Has the Republican base 
simply walked away from this? Do you think it's a uh, something where activists or polling or you know different economic concerns have moved it? What do you think is impacting this? Well, I think there is still a significant and powerful pro-life lobby in this country, which still has the ability to push politicians to embrace pro-life positions. Uh, like you just saw Ron DeSantis sign a six-week ban in Florida after already signing a 15-week ban. Um, even though this is not particularly popular in his state, I think it's uh, about a third um, of the state would support a, a heartbeat bill. Um, although abortion polling is always tricky. It depends on how you ask the questions. Uh I don't think there's necessarily a total souring on the issue. Pro-life politicians can still win. You saw Greg Abbott, Mike DeWine, Brian Kemp, and Ron DeSantis all win re-election very handily um, in 2022 after uh, pushing the pro-life agenda forward in their in their terms. Um, but yeah, I think that there's there's a good piece by Richard Hanania that came out recently where he laid out the reasons that he thinks the pro-life uh, cause is so unpopular. Um, part of it is just due to um, the general uh, obsession with rights in American society and the unwillingness to give up rights or embrace restrictions on freedom. And the pro-life movement really doesn't have a good way of framing the issue yet that can undermine the left's framing of the issue, which is just this is this is freedom versus oppression or freedom versus restriction. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think we are in a scenario where the limits of freedoms or rights-based conversation uh, is kind of going to take you. This is something that I think in general the right has a problem with. When everything is existing in kind of the civil rights revolution, that language and that framework, everything has to be about a civil right. If, if, it's, if your issue isn't about a civil right, then it's just not an issue. And as long as that's kind of the entire frame in which one can have discussions in America, if that's the only argument that really legitimates your political popularity of an issue, then I think not just this particular issue, but in general, the right wing and conservatism is in trouble because there has to be something else. You know, there's a reason that I think uh, Jordan Peterson had such traction, and it's because he stopped talking to everybody about rights and he started talking to people about responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And as much as that doesn't pull initially well somewhere, it does speak to a generation that's never really heard that before. It doesn't understand duty, mm -hmm. doesn't understand responsibility, doesn't understand that meaning can come from restriction and being bound to something rather than mm -hmm. liberated from it. And so I think that the, the pro-life movement, I mean, you can say, well, the child has a right to life, but I, well, I guess you could say that's true. I think that the reason that doesn't pull the way you hope it does is it's really a, an attempt to use the left's language and the language of a, a movement you don't control to try to further a position that everyone is kind of uh, against on that side. And so I think there does need to be a, a paradigm shift in the way the right looks at its framing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that you're correct in that right, the, right liberal, the, the right liberal case for this isn't as strong as it could be. Um, there are thinkers on the right who are kind of in a more pro-liberal frame who I think do good work on this. Uh, Leah Labresco Sargent does a lot of good work on the importance of interdependence um, and kind of the duties of care that we owe one another in society and in family. And I think that's probably a stronger way to frame the issue in some ways. Um, you know, a common kind of pro-choice argument is, well, oh, if I have to 
you know, donate the use of my organs to keep this child alive for nine months? Like, can the state also compel me to, uh, to give a blood donation to someone who needs blood? Um, and, you know, the answer is no, I have my bodily autonomy and so on and so forth. But it's just this incredibly grotesque, like borderline autistic way of framing the issue when you're, you're thinking of your own child that you're nurturing in your womb and thinking, ah, parasite invader, like stop using my organs. Right. It's like, what? Yeah. I mean, there it's what comes from this need to extend rationality, rationality beyond its bounds. Like any, anyone for throughout history understood the difference between these things. It was not something that needed to be explained to them. They didn't need some kind of scientific or complex philosophical argument to understand why compelling someone to give blood would be different from a mother carrying their child. But we're now at the point where everything has to be extended into just the most absurd rational argument. And this is where I think also argument kind of breaks down. Uh, You know, there, these, these questions aren't really questions of, of, pure logic they're questions of basic morality of moral visions and they you can't really ration your way from one position to another there needs to be an emotive cause there needs to be a connection to things that are beyond us for people to i think truly understand kind of the value of this and so i think one of the reasons that the pro-life cause might feel like it's in a bit of a uh, no man's land at the moment is it had a clear vision, right? The clear vision was Roe versus Wade. That that mm-hmm. was the white whale. That was what bound it together. That's kind of, there's no other need to have other discussions because there was such a oppressive uh, Supreme Court law or, uh, uh, you know, standard in place that nothing else could be done. So it didn't really matter. And that kind of gave an, an animating uh, cause to the pro-life movement that bound it together. But once it was done, you're now just kind of coasting off of, I think, a religiosity um, and, a, and a moral structure that was there at the beginning of the pro-life movement, but doesn't exist in many ways, even on the right at this point. And that means it's very hard to find a reason to move beyond that initial win or to buttress that win, I think, for much of the Republican base. Yeah, this is another difficult angle moving forward with the pro-life movement is that, you know, the the pro-life movement at first was kind of Catholic social teaching. Um, you kind of had the the strong, you know, JP2 theology of the body um, uh, tradition there on on bioethics and the pro-life issue. And then you kind of had evangelicals and, and Protestants in this country as like the shock troops. Um there isn't really much of a secular pro-life movement in this country, which sets it apart from other cultural issues. You know, there's a, there is a secular movement against uh, transgender ideology, for instance. Um, you know, you do have parents who aren't particularly religious standing up in school board meetings and saying, we don't want, you know, our kids being trans and we don't want pornography in the school libraries and all this stuff. You have, um, you know, the, the, IDW type, like I left the left intellectuals who will often push back on that issue, but they're not going to touch the pro-life issue. Um, so that's difficult. But yeah, the the demographic is just declining. Uh, religiosity is on the decline. Um, if the Republican Party wants to survive as an electorally viable uh, force in American politics, they're probably going to have to expand their appeal to bar school, barstool conservatives who are notoriously uh, socially libertine and uh, uninterested in, in religion. 
Um, it's especially uninterested in restricting abortion. So this is what my the thrust of my piece is actually, is that I could foresee a world moving forward where the GOP just sort of declares, okay, we've achieved consensus on the issue of abortion. Like we've carried you as far as we are going to carry you. You are now a liability for us. You know, say out loud that you're content with a 15 week federal ban or you are going to be exiled from our, our coalition, like, uh, like the John Birchers before you. Yeah. I, I think probably relating to the John Birchers is, is a more apt comparison than most people understand. Um, it's a, it's a bygone era and most people don't really they don't really grasp the level of purging that has happened in the conservative movement and how far left your conservative movement has shifted uh, over time through those different purges and a purging of the pro-life movement as the same kind of quote unquote extremism that someone like the Birchers would have uh, represented is probably an apt understanding of what the next iteration of the GOP would look like, which really puts us in a weird space. There's there's a couple of questions, a couple of directions I want to go from that. So uh, I guess we'll just start from the beginning here. Uh, the first thing we should probably address is: is this a reasonable concern? Right? Like for like, it seems like the vote. You know, you're you're saying all of these electoral concerns are valid. Um, maybe you know the GOP says, "Look, we're you know obviously this isn't how I feel, but but I'm just making the case here. Uh, you know, we're we're the small government party." Uh, we don't. We believe in states' rights. We've secured the states' rights to regulate abortion as they see fit, uh, to do all or nothing as they choose, and that's what this party's all about in the first place. There's no reason to do something wildly unpopular that also violates this principle. Why not just leave this here? Well, yeah. So my one response would be: I don't want to. I don't want to give the mistaken impression that I'm. Uh, opposed to the idea of making tactical um, decisions in the realm of electoral politics. Um, there are certain states where I think South Carolina is one where you've actually seen some moderate Republicans starting to, even though they have strong Republican majorities, you've seen moderates starting to defect uh, because they're pushing for bans with no uh, rape and incest exceptions, for instance. In a case like that, I'd say, okay, put the exceptions in. You know, it's better to have a 12-week a ban with exceptions than it is to have, you know, abortion legal up through viability at 22 or 24 weeks, right? Um, any any measure that bans more abortions, I am happy with. But there needs to be the understanding that people who are serious about the pro-life movement are not going to be satisfied with any type of half measure. Once you've internalized the idea that this is a baby and it's being killed, um, you can't stop ever. It's, uh, you know, the the nation cannot exist half uh, baby killing and half not baby killing. Um, there's simply no no moral argument to make if that's what someone believes, that, that there's any compromise to be had on this issue. Um, you know, in the same way that, that the kind of radical abolitionists weren't comfortable with any compromise on the issue of slavery back in the 19th century. Um, so yeah, I think that it could become an albatross electorally. I'm not, uh, I'm not here to necessarily dispense any white pills. I, uh, the, the column I wrote is in a very despairing mode. And I think that uh, there's reason to be very frightened about the future and what's going to happen here. Um, but like I said, it, I'm willing to make tactical moves. There just needs to be the understanding that um, 
you know, people will say, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good as an mm-hmm. argument for uh, making a compromise. Uh, what I would say flipping that around is don't let the good become a substitute for the perfect. Um, especially when the good here is something like a 15 week ban, which outlaws something like 6% of abortions. Like you're going to give me that and tell me, okay, you're done. You, you got what you asked for. No, I didn't. It's 6%. I think you're in a, a very interesting situation because there, again, there's, there's a couple places to go here. First, I think that, uh, the GOP or just conservatives, Republicans, the right in general has to kind of shift their understanding of politics as well. Something is not popular, right? This is the phrase we hear. Something is not popular. Well, as you pointed out, DeSantis passes the ban. It being popular or not is not really a concern because DeSantis has two things working in his advantage. One, he simply has solidified enough political control. Uh, to where this is not an issue. It doesn't matter if it's popular or not. It happens because mm-hmm. DeSantis says it does. Second, he's amassed enough personal kind of gravitas and enough um, uh, security in his pos- political position where he can lead on the issue. And whether it's popular or not is not anything of substance. We see the left do this all the time, right? Like if you told people four years ago that transing kids was popular, uh, they would have said, and four years ago, not not twenty years ago, like four years ago, uh, then they would have said, "You're insane! Like that. That's never going to happen. That's never. They're never going to make an argument for this. It's so wildly unpopular to to shove pornography in children's schools. It's so wildly unpopular to say put you know a, an eight year old on puberty blockers. It's so wildly popular to say that we have to be able to tell a five year old uh, that they're transitioning or something." But popularity doesn't seem to have affected this at all, right? This movement advanced in lieu of any popularity. And not only has it advanced, it's winning on almost every Mm -hmm. front. And it's normalizing things despite having never been popular, right? And this is true of many different things. This is true of everything from, you know, uh, you know, forced busing in schools, uh, you know, to gay marriage to, to, to this. So I think, the frame of popularity, electoral popularity mm-hmm. is a misnomer in many cases. The GOP, the right is still chasing the idea of electoral mm-hmm. popularity when it's crafting a platform rather than understanding what they need to do is engineer a situation in which their their goals are popular. They, they become popular because they're winning, because they've been adopted by uh, influential institutions and other things like that. Yeah, so I think you're correct here that um, the left has a huge advantage on this just because they control the entire cultural apparatus um, and their beliefs are coded as high status. Um, So yeah, you're right. They have an ability to move the Overton window and to shift discourse that the right simply doesn't have. And the tools that are at the right's disposal to try to compensate for that disadvantage um, often end up feeding into the dominant uh, left-leading narratives. So for example, there are a few areas where Republican-run states can fight back against this push for um, abortion ballot measures. Uh, one of those is to raise the threshold to get something on the ballot. Uh, so make it you know, 10 times as many signatures before something becomes a ballot measure. Uh, just raise it completely out of, out of reach of, a, of an organization. Um, The other one is specific to uh, Wisconsin, where their state Supreme Court just flipped uh, to a liberal majority. Uh, The woman who ran uh, 
as the liberal and one campaigned explicitly on overturning the state's pre-row abortion ban, uh, which is a highly unethical thing to do in a, in a judicial race. Um, and she'll probably also overturn the state's uh, state legislative electoral maps, which have essentially gerrymandered Wisconsin Republicans into a permanent supermajorities in both houses, even though they routinely lose the statewide popular vote. Um, so they could use those supermajorities to impeach uh, this new justice and probably have a fairly solid case based on her conduct on the election uh, on the campaign trail. But again, just that and raising the threshold for a ballot measure are both inherently undemocratic uh, moves, which is bad optics. Uh, you know, if you want to look at the actual facts and the actual truth, then you'll see that there are a number of anti-democratic uh, procedures built into the U.S. Constitution. For example, the president could serve infinite terms. Uh, Congress or the Senate was not directly elected. Um, and there wasn't really much of a place for statewide ballot measures at that time. These are all changes that have happened over time, uh, making our form of government more democratic and more responsive to popular will. Um, and I think that's often been a mistake. Yeah, you don't have to sell me on that one, as you're probably aware. Uh, and anything we can do to make things less democratic uh, is 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 not a particularly unpopular thing for me. Uh, however, um, obviously, uh, you know, changes of leadership would would uh, be a key factor of that. But I guess the other thing that kind of goes side by side with that is the need for conservatives to have more power before any of this could be meaningful right in many ways focusing on any next steps in a pro-life movement mm -hmm. is as as you kind of point out here pointless unless you've secured a wider power base not just inside um, government though that's essential but also across cultural uh, uh you know cultural boundaries across the mm -hmm. private public distinction uh, all of these things and so i think that it might be wise, um, mm -hmm. and and again, as somebody who who is pro life, but I think it might be wise to heed some of these calls. Not because I think uh, call you know saying oh this is unpopular is is an under is an intelligent understanding of of a problem. Mm -hmm. Problem is not that it's unpopular. Problem is that you don't have enough power, um, and mm -hmm. so you would need you would need to acquire uh, power in order to shift popularity in the way that the left does on a regular basis before you be able to do that. And so I think it might behoove the pro-life movement uh, to focus itself more on the acquisition of those levers of power across the things in the way that it did when it comes to the judiciary, right? Like that's mm -hmm. a very particular focus. You can argue, arguably say that the most successful targeting of power by the right in, you know, many, many decades. Uh, mm -hmm. And so uh, obviously the pro-life movement has the ability to do this they they have the connections they have the lobbying they have that but it now that they've won a certain section of the judiciary it might be time to turn those efforts not on then chasing down you know every state law and every uh, you know every court ruling but widening their ability to kind of hold power so that they can shift things in this direction once that's kind of where they're set sure well the concern i understand what you're saying the concern i'd have with that would be um, okay, the pro-life uh, pushing for extreme, you know, abortion restrictions is unpopular. So, okay, the pro-life movement steps back, lays low for, or whatever for a few electoral cycles, right? 
we, you know, you meet the, the leaders of the GOP and the leaders of the, the pro-life advocacy groups all meet in a smoke-filled room and the pro-life advocacy, advocacy groups say, okay, we'll, we'll content ourselves with a 15-week federal ban or with leaving it to the states or whatever the consensus approach happens to be. Um, doing air quotes around consensus for the audio listeners. Um, and then they say, okay, um, you know, this will help the GOP win elections. In two or three election cycles, we'll come back and we'll push for the heartbeat bill. Um, what's to say that the GOP at this point uh, wouldn't simply say three election cycles from now, hey, we've kind of gotten used to winning elections. I think we like this. Uh, maybe we'll just uh, have you stay out there where we put you, right? Um, how does the... How does the pro-life movement get back in at that point and really push its push its demands? I mean, the if you look if you want an archetypal uh, example of this, just look at the UK Conservative Party, which is pro-choice has has not put up any kind of fight on the abortion issue. Really, um, in fact, has been in power since 2010 and has overseen the um, legal enforcement of a ban against thinking prayers near an abortion clinic in your head. Uh, that's how, that's how not pro-life the UK conservative party is. And yet, you know, they've been in power since 2010. They've, they've gone from strength to strength. Uh, and I, I think that there are plenty of people in the U S GOP who would love to see something like that. Um, because, you know, winning elections can often become an end in itself rather than a, a means to the end of good policy. I think you're right. You know, of course, the UK just doesn't have a right wing. I mean, it's all there is to it. There's yeah. no conservative party in, in you yeah, know, they can call themselves whatever they want. It's the leftist and the most and the even more radical leftists in the UK. <laughs> um, and we're much closer to that in America than most conservatives like to admit. Um, and I think you're right that there is a danger, of course, of just taking the back seat. Um, that's that's not what I was talking about. You're right. If you just if you just sit down and you say, "Oh, okay, well, we'll just lay low and you guys do your thing," and yeah, you're just going to get forgotten about, especially as your constituency is actively shrinking, mm -hmm. uh, and your power is waning as that happens. But I think that's the big problem, right? That that's the issue that the pro life movement needs to focus on is mm. they need to expand that constituency. You need mm. to expand your power base so that it can endure beyond simply having, you know, the whims of some speaker of the house or something driving your agenda. You really need to have a, a focus on culture. You need to have a, a focus on an outreach that, you know, uh, an influence that changes these things on a level that's more durable than any given election cycle. Obviously, that's a much larger task. It's it's a far harder, and you know, it's not like it wasn't a monumental enough task to get to where they did with Dobbs' decision uh, yeah. in the first place. But I think that is kind of your only way forward because you're can, like you said, your your influence will continue to wane if your base mm -hmm. continues to wane, no matter what. Like you're not just going to hold on to all of this in perpetuity. And if you got yourself some kind of, you know, ban down to six weeks or whatever, it would simply evaporate in a few years mm -hmm. once whatever's left of your influence completely fades out of the conservative movement. And it's just repealed by, you know, by the next wave of people. So I don't think there's any there's any there's no point in passing a law that will simply be completely obliterated an election cycle or two later once your uh, influence is gone. The influence is what matters. That's the only thing holding you in place that. The law is simply a shibboleth. 
Sure. I see what you mean. So to expand that influence, there's basically two ways that could go. One is we have a massive uh, religious revival in this country, which if the Holy Spirit sees fit to move in that way, I will be incredibly grateful. Um, I don't know that we can necessarily rely on that in political terms. Um, and the other one would be to figure out some way to appeal en masse to an increasingly secular uh, American electorate, um, which so far has not been particularly uh, successful. There are secular pro-lifers. I know several of them who work with the, uh, for example, the Progressive Anti-Abortion Uprising Group, um, who, despite my uh, despite my significant disagreements with them on on most policy areas, were ac was actually the pro-life group I chose to work with when I was directly involved in pro-life activism because they were the most aggressive uh, about pushing for a real pro-life agenda and and really taking direct action and moving the needle on that. Um, so if we're able to expand in some way our appeal as pro-lifers to secular voters and secular uh, actors in America, I'd be for that. I'm just generally nervous about this because I don't like the idea of just taking a more secular country as, as kind of a fait accompli, especially because there's a very ugly side to this potentially, which is, uh, you know, there's the saying, like, if you hate the religious right, wait till you see the post-religious right, um, where you do have uh, kind of dissident thinkers on the right. Most of them are anons at this point, but there's people who agree with them who will say, why would you fight against abortion? Like, why would you sacrifice um, the ability to win elections and accrue power to save uh, Shaniqua's fetus is the term I often see. Like if, you know, if, if black Americans have higher abortion rates and vote for Democrats at vastly disproportionate rates, aren't they doing us a favor? And shouldn't we just let our political enemies destroy themselves in the womb? Uh, which is something that I understand as a Machiavellian uh, political proposal, but is something that as a Christian, I simply have to draw a line and say, that's, that's not something that's acceptable. That goes against everything I believe. Um, and, you know, if you may, if you want to make me choose between the political consequences of being consistently pro-life and, um, and abandoning that, that conviction for, to, <laughs> to gain the whole world, so to speak, it's, it's not even a, a question for me. It's not even a choice. Um, Sure. And, and I'll agree with you there. But of course, you understand that, that the way that electoral math works out is then you end up losing anyway, right? Because <laughs> your political enemies, are there are more of them and you live in a democracy. And so they beat you. And then they just roll back the things that you cared about in the first place. Again, I'm with you on this, but I'm just saying mm -hmm. your your problem is in in the democratic mechanism here, not <laughs> yeah, like yes, like of course. Here. I'm 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 absolutely <laughs> blaming the democratic mechanism here. That is, yeah. we agree that that is the problem here. Yeah, the, the, um, yeah, the the very existence of the democratic mechanism ensures your defeat either way. Um, mm -hmm. And so that so whether whether you're Machiavellian about it or not, you end up in the same position. 
um yeah. so so there there's a huge problem there but uh like i said this is a black pill column i yeah I yeah no good solutions here <laughs> not, not not yeah not not the most uh, exciting uh or not not the happiest one but though i will say and um you know i i've of course see all of those arguments that you're talking about on uh, you know the more dissident right and, and internet anons and such but i'll also say there are people making very powerful arguments the other way in the same sphere benjamin braddock you know uh stepped up and uh you know he said I see a lot of people, you know, saying we need to embrace this. We need to let our political enemies do do away with themselves, uh, you know, whatever. And he says, uh, you know, he had two arguments against it. One, he said, uh, we should we should burn their we should burn their idols. This is one of the enemy's idols. And so the the destruction of the idol is valuable enough in and of itself. Uh, It is demoralizing enough for enemies in and of itself to be worth it. And then he also yeah, he posted a video of uh, of a father just begging uh, the mother of his child not to go in and get an abortion, and her just ignoring him, and him just falling apart and crying, you know, in the in in the parking lot. And he just said, "I don't want to. I don't want to live in a country where this is a thing. Like, I, I I don't care. Like, I don't care what this is. So evil, it just simply cannot be allowed to exist." And so, um, I I hear you. I know there are people who make those arguments. You're right that they're they're out there, but I just want to say there are compelling voices and influential voices in the anon sphere in the digital rights sphere who also make i think very very compelling arguments the other direction so uh that that is out there i'm very grateful for that certainly um there's a who was that french author who wrote the ancient uh the ancient city collage reference collage yeah i so there's a professor at Catholic University named Chad Pecknold, who's kind of a, a post-liberal integralist type. Uh, yeah, I've had him on the show, actually. Oh, you have? Oh, he's yeah. wonderful. Um, just a really kind man, too, as well. Just a great person to talk to. But yeah, he gave a lecture that I went to once on on Collange and the, the ancient city and talked about how the city was religious in nature, was founded on its, on its altars, um, was kind of unavoidably centered around that which it worshipped. Um, and just thinking about that and thinking about, uh, you know, accounts of the second uh, accounts of the Punic Wars between Roman Carthage or the um, Spanish conquest of the Americas and seeing these examples of civilizations whose altars were um, places of human sacrifice and often of infant sacrifice in the case of Carthage. Um, And yes, it's, it's probably far more jarring to have uh, to have to watch a a baby be thrown on the scalding arms of an idol in, in open air at a religious ceremony. Uh, That's more, more jarring than to just walk past a brightly colored fluorescent lit clinic and on the sidewalk and know what's going on inside, but you can just kind of ignore it because you don't have to see it. But it's the same thing. I mean, if you'll allow me to get very, uh, very religious for a moment, uh, I think there were real demonic forces behind Carthage and behind the Aztecs. And I think there are real demonic forces behind Planned Parenthood. Um, and I don't think they crave recognition as much as they crave the destruction of human beings. Um, they're perfectly happy to uh, ditch the name of Moloch and uh, allow that to be swapped out for the idea of empowerment or self-determination. Uh, but the effect is the same. It, the effect on the soul of the nation is the same. So I would just urge listeners, if you 
walk past or drive past an abortion clinic, just in your mind, imagine that this is a, a tall bronze idol of Moloch and that you're watching babies being incinerated on this idol. Um, and that should give you a sense of the kind of country we live in. And I hope you'll, I actually hope you'll think twice before you say something like this is the greatest country on earth or um, speak as though this country has some kind of great moral authority around the world that exceeds that of other countries. We do not. Um, we are in many ways morally equivalent to Carthage or to Tenochtitlan. Yeah, it really is amazing how much you can convince people uh, of when you just kind of materialize things, when you move things into the realm of the scientific and the, the cold and the analytical, you can try to diffuse many of those uh, I think natural uh, spiritual uh, recoiling uh, or disgust mechanisms that would come in uh, when things are otherwise observed. But what I think has shocked so many people is watching this thing, you know, so much of this movement, I think it was advanced because they were able to materialize this and make it cold and clinical and scientific. But now it's shifting back into the realm of the spiritual. You see people claiming this as a, as a holy right, as a, as a, you know, as something that is, um, you know, uh, divine in some ways that you, you directly see uh you know even the, the you know there's a reason that the uh the uh, the uh, temple of satan is claiming abortion and uh, and uh, child transition as as religious rituals that i know that sounds ironic but it isn't there's no such thing as ironic satan it's it's, it's exactly just, it's just accurate um but that said uh i guess we can go ahead and oh actually i wanted to ask you one more thing before we go uh sure. so what do you think it looks like? Because the pro-life movement has been such a critical part of conservative politics for so long. It has, while it while its influence has waned, it has been such a massive driving force for fundraising and political activism and all kinds of things inside the GOP. If that influence truly is being ejected from the party, if they really are being abandoned or left behind, what does that mean? I mean, you already said they're going to have to appeal to kind of the barstool sports types, but what does that look like for kind of the internal operation of the GOP when you've removed kind of what's the last vestige and influence of what was the religious right? Well, I think the GOP becomes more electorally successful uh, is one thing. Um, looking at it from the other side, though, I would say it's important to remember as, as pro-lifers that the um, sphere of electoral politics is not the only one. Um, even if we are entirely ejected from the GOP and our, the political levers are taken completely out of our hands, we can still run crisis pregnancy centers until the blue states ban them. We can, <laughs> And when they do, we can run them underground. Um, we can still donate to registries for mothers in need. We can still adopt unwanted children. We can still uh, protest outside abortion clinics and do sidewalk counseling. And one thing I think would do would go a long way towards um, helping the pro-life movement come back as a real force kind of just on the ground as opposed to in the halls of, of the judiciary and the legislatures is the repeal of the FACE Act. Um, the FACE Act makes it a federal crime to block access to an abortion clinic on the, on the idea that um, under Roe v. Wade, it was a federal civil right to access abortion. So it was a it was a federal civil rights crime to block an abortion clinic. There's a case pending right now, actually, I believe it's still pending that could overturn the FACE Act uh, since um, I'm obviously not a legal scholar. But one argument would be that with Roe overturned, uh, it's no longer protecting a civil right. 
And if that's the case, you could see mass protests like the ones, uh, just for one example, that Randall Terry led in, I believe, the 80s in Buffalo, New York, where some tens of thousands of people descended on Buffalo and and simply blockaded all of the city's clinics for days. Um, you know, imagine the the March for Life, but instead of simply walking up and down the National Mall, you had thousands of people surround every single abortion clinic in D.C. for an entire day um, and and place their bodies physically between between the the so-called doctors who wanted to kill babies and the people coming to them for that service. Um, that could be a possibility. Again, it could be something we could we could fight out in the streets. And uh, I think that would be a huge step forward as well. Uh, if, if that was, uh, if that was an option within reach. Yeah. I'm, I'm a little black pilled on that as well. I think they'll just arrest you, but, uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't think the act had anything to do with it. The right-wing protests are illegal in the United States. Everyone should just probably understand that. Um, there, yeah, there, is, there is no rule of law there. They, 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 they don't need a reason. They'll, they'll just come for you and they'll invent it post hoc. The, the media will paper that for them. I'm not saying that, you know, that some things aren't worth it, but I'm just saying people need to understand the reality of that situation. Uh, mm-hmm. But that said, uh, now that we've just laid out all the most uh, uplifting uh, and uh, <laughs> and uh, f- uh, positive uh, uh, kind of prognostication that we can, uh, where can people find your work, Grace, and where should they look for your columns and ever- other stuff that you're doing? Yes, I'm a weekly columnist at the Daily Caller. Uh, you can find me there simply by Googling my name. I've been published in a, a number of other outlets as well, um, everything from National Review to the American Mind to the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. So if you want to just Google me, I have a website with links to most of my stuff, though I don't update it much. And I'm on Twitter at Hemingway, H-E-M-I-N-G-Q-U-A-Y. Excellent. All right, guys, we'll make sure that you check out Grayson's work. And if this is your first time here, of course, please make sure that you go ahead and subscribe to the channel. Also, if you want to get these broadcasts as podcasts, make sure that you go to your favorite podcast platform and you go ahead and subscribe to the McIntyre show. When you do that, if you could give a rating or review, that really helps. Thanks for watching, guys. And as always, we'll talk to you next time.